you are such a product of your environment. And I knew if I truly wanted to grow as a person and a professional, I had to put myself in quite literally a foreign environment, both in country and possibly in sport. So I looked all over the world, everywhere outside of the American borders. And in, in doing so, just I had a, a mutual colleague of my now boss, David Nusifora, and David was looking to freshen up his, his high-performance sector from an S&C perspective. And the role that I'm in, we can get into it if you'd like, is quite diverse. It requires coaching. It requires coaching coaches, systems thinking, education. Every day is a little bit different. And funny enough, albeit I had never worked with rugby per se, the actual operating environment and the diversity was quite similar to where I was currently at in my leadership role at Exos at the time. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness podcast. That voice you heard in the beginning was Dr. Nick Winkleman. And before I get the introduction for Dr. Winkleman, I want to say a huge thank you to all of those of you who have posted reviews, who've given a review to All About Fitness. And All About Fitness was just recognized on another top list. The RSS feed recognized All About Fitness as one of the top health and fitness podcasts. So those reviews matters, folks. I really, you know, I'm bringing this content out to you. I'm putting these podcasts out. I'm trying to give you information to enhance your quality of life through fitness and exercise. So if you just reach down and give a quick review, uh, tell people how you like All About Fitness, that really helps out, and I, I really do appreciate it. Now, on to this episode's guest. One of the world's largest sporting events just got finished. No, I'm not talking anything to do with American football. I'm talking rugby. On this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast, we're about to get into all about rugby. Well, not really, not all about rugby. Dr. Nick Wickelman is the uh, Director of Performance for the Irish Rugby Football Union. Now, in that position, Nick is very involved with helping the athletes to perform better. Now, in the conversation today, Nick, you know, Nick is a relatively new entrant to the sport of rugby, but he spent many years working in the United States for a little group called Exos, which is formerly Athletes Performance. So the reason why I wanted to have Nick on, on the podcast was, number one, I'm a rugby fan, and as a rugby, as a former athlete, as a former player, and, and now a coach, um, just you know, selfishly, I wanted to kind of pick Nick's brain a little bit and hear like, his approach to coaching. And then number two, I used to play with the Irish Boston, or the Irish, uh, yeah, the Irish, Bo- the Boston Irish Wolfhounds. Sorry, I was trying to say it too quickly. I played rugby with the Boston Irish uh, Wolfhounds, and so we, had, we we played at the Irish Cultural Center in Boston. So for the fellows on the club, this is a huge shout out to you guys, Stevie, Dan Jones, everybody. I wanted to do this interview and, and bring you a little bit of insight into Irish rugby. But really, for listeners, what I wanted to speak with Nick about, and this is this is the this, the truth of it is he is an expert at the language of coaching. In fact, that's the title of his new book. So whether you're a personal trainer, whether you're a fitness instructor, or you're a fitness consumer and you just love sweating, you're going to hear a discussion today about the role uh, the role that the performance coach or conditioning coach plays in an athlete from a perspective of how does, how does a coach help an athlete prepare, and then how does a coach communicate with an athlete. And that's really what I want you to, to listen to Nick today, is listen to the discussion Nick is an expert communicator. He really is. You know, and it really, it, what I think we need to get over is we need, we need to get over the fact that we need to be an expert at, at technical stuff. Like, you don't need to be an expert in a sport to be able to coach the movements for that sport. 
And I'll say that again. You don't need to be an, an expert in a sport to coach the movements for that sport. What you're going to hear about Nick describe is that if you understand movement, if you understand how the body's designed to move, and more importantly, if you understand how to communicate, then you can be an effective coach for any client in any situation. So after a brief word from the sponsors of All About Fitness, it really is a lot of fun today. And really, this is kind of a geek out session, so be prepared for some technical language. If you hear the term SNC, SNC refers to strength and conditioning. You might not be as familiar with that, but this is just a fascinating conversation on the language of coaching with Dr. Nick Winkleman. It's a platform. It's a balance tool. You can do a ton of different exercises on it. Guys, you've been listening to me talk about the TerraCore. You've been hearing TerraCore ads on All About Fitness. Well, I've got great news for you. I went to the folks at TerraCore. The code AAF, I changed the code. The code AAF now gets you a 25%. That is 25, 25% savings on a TerraCore. Use code AAF to save 25% on a TerraCore. What is TerraCore? Don't go to TerraCoreFitness.com. That is TerraCoreFitness.com. T-E-R-R-A CoreFitness.com and check out one of the coolest products in fitness. See why Men's Health voted it one of the top fitness at-home products that you should have for your workouts. Check out TerraCore Fitness on Instagram to see some amazing tricks. Again, TerraCore now is 25% off through All About Fitness. Use code AAF to save 25% on the purchase of a TerraCore. This episode we're doing a special all about rugby. We just finished up with the, uh, well, it's not going to be all about rugby. We just finished up with the Rugby World Cup, and I am very lucky to be speaking with Dr. Nick Winkleman, the director of performance. Is that your title, Nick? Uh, that's my boss's title. My title is head <laughs> of athletic performance and science. Close enough. <laughs> and, and so your background, reason I wanted to talk to you, for listeners, I wanted to talk to Nick, track Nick down for a couple reasons. One is, and we'll get into what you're doing now, but I wanted to ask you about Nick because you were part of something a number of years ago that really changed the performance training and the performance conditioning industry. And I don't think people really realize that, you know, you started, you worked with a group, you started your career with a group called athletes performance. That's become Exos. Can you talk a little bit about what, um, what that was and why that was so special? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think the best way to kick that off is to share how I even found out about it. So, uh, back in the early 2000s, I was in college, and I met this guy named Guido Van Reisigam uh, while I was at Oregon State University. And Guido had been working in professional baseball uh, with the Baltimore Orioles and their minor league organization for, gosh, I think it was 14 years. And like many minor leagues, they're either in Arizona or Florida. So he was in Florida. And while he was working in the minor leagues, he got to know a guy named Mark Verstegen, who was working at uh, the, the Boletary Institute at the time, the, the famed tennis academy in uh, Bradenton, Florida. And while you know, they crossed paths, he was like, this guy was doing something quite interesting. He started a, 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 you know, a high-performance center within Boletary called IPI, the International Performance Institute. So I remember I'm talking to Guido. He's now at Oregon State University, and he's telling me about this guy, Mark Verstegen. He said, listen, what this guy is going to do to the industry is going to absolutely revolutionize high performance. So he, so he caught my attention. I said, well, why? He's like, well, basically, he, he picked up his, his wife, his family, moved to Arizona, got a loan, I think, from Wells Fargo, 
and is starting one of, if not the first, private high-performance training centers that will cater to literally every professional athlete in their off-season and will provide a level of service at or above what one has come to expect uh, from a professional team or an Olympic organization. And he's like, but probably it's going to be better because he's going to bring in the medical, the S&C, the nutrition, the sports psych, the sports science, all under one roof. And because it's a private entity, they'll be able to drive excellence at a level far quicker than the bureaucracy sometimes you see in professional sport. So he's telling me all about this guy, and he pulls out this pamphlet with, with uh, Mark on the front and just this militant-looking man with the flat top, you know, looks straight out of, you know, some kind of a Bruce Willis movie as the villain and said, this is the guy. And I'm telling you right now, if you want to be the best, in athletic performance, whatever that means to you, this is who you need to work with. So, you know, I'm 19 at the time, Pete, and I'm like, okay, I'm sold. You tell me what I've got to do. So basically, you know, I was getting the degree. I was working under this guy, uh, Guido, still a mentor for me today. And all I could see was athletes' performance straight ahead. And in 2006, I literally rocked up. I, I took a flight to Phoenix, Arizona, literally knocked on the front door, left my, uh, my resume, got a tour from a gal named Jacqueline, and a few weeks later, Verstegen's wife, Amy, shoots me an email and says, hey, do you, want, do you want to come intern? And I said, absolutely. So 2006, that summer, I went and interned. And when I, when I showed up there, you know, at the time, there was the Phoenix facility, or at the time it was in Tempe, actually, and there was a facility in, in California as well at the Home Depot Center. And they were just about to open uh, a facility in Vegas and then shortly thereafter, Florida. But really, it was just those two flagship facilities. And when I got there, it was everything that the Guido, again, my mentor, had told me. You know, in January and February, it was the top 30 to 35 college prospects preparing for the NFL Combine. Uh, they trained alongside some of the best. MLB athletes of the time. Shortly thereafter, uh, after the NFL guys got done with their vacation, they started rolling in. Then hockey, then NBA basketball, right? Then the summer program with the kids and the collegiate athletes. And it just rolled on like that, where basically the, the in-season for athletes' performance was every professional sports off-season. And it was such a unique environment because it operated like a professional sports team, but it was a team of teams, literally. And the camaraderie and the interaction and the quality of the overall training environment socially was amazing because you had this cross-cultural interaction of so many different sports. But fast forward, for anyone that works in pro sport, you can't really have a, a – a financial empire, and thus the background to make a really large impact just with professional athletes. So long-term, Verstegen's goal was to positively impact the movement of fitness as many lives as possible, which is why then the athlete's performance brand scaled into the core performance brand for things like corporate wellness with Google and Intel, and also the military starting to provide on-site service to SOCOM, the, the Special Operations Command, and actually taking, if you would, mini-athletes' performances and putting them on every base, literally, 
uh, in the country. And what that started to do is allowed Verstegen to take this training system that was born out of working with the elite of the elite and scale it to, to general population and, and those in need. And so when I started, it was two facilities, maybe, Pete, 50, 60 employees. I think when I left there in uh, 2016, based on an acquisition they had done, they were pushing close to 5,000 employees, most of which working in the corporate sector. And I don't even know how many facilities they have now, hundreds. So, you know, to see, to see Mark, he's literally achieved his dream of being able to positively impact thousands, now probably millions of lives to movement and fitness. And, and I appreciate that history of that, Nick. And, and I've seen it from, from a perspective from kind of a more than the arm's length away because I've taken education courses that you guys have taught. But I was first introduced to, to Verstegen and athletes' performance in maybe two, in the early 2000s. Um, I was a trainer in yeah. D.C., a personal trainer, and I was watching this guy do a movement prep series in, in, our, in, our, pers- in our group fitness studio. And I had taken you know, my Vern Gambetta course, and I had taken a Gary Gray course. Yeah. So I kind of... I kind of knew what he was doing, and I go in there and I talk to him. It turned out he was uh, the long snapper for the Green Bay Packers at the time, and he started telling me about the movement prep they was doing from uh, the studio that he was going to in Arizona called Athletes Performance. And that was the <laughs> so it, it was kind of like it was an interesting thing because I saw this guy and I'm like, oh, he definitely he definitely knows what he's doing. And that's when I first kind of heard that clued in. But over the years, and, and for listeners, what Nick is talking about is that before maybe the late '90s. There was no real systematic way for professional athletes to train in the off season. There really wasn't. A season got done, and and a conditioning coach might put out a program. But would you agree, Nick, that the athletes were kind of like left on their own? Listen, that's why. So if you go way back, Verstegen was at Washington State, and he he got injured. And after that injury, he wanted to start. He wanted to still be part of the team. So he started working with their head strength coach, and inevitably he just had an affinity for it. And then he went from there to Georgia, and then from Georgia, I believe I have this right, down to IPI. And spot on, he identified that there really was not a place for an athlete to go in the offseason. And, and because the United States is so big, you might play professional ball on the East Coast or collegiate ball on the East Coast, but you're from the West Coast. So you want to go back home, rightly so, in your off-season, but now you're having to find your friend or your buddy, possibly a personal trainer, but there really wasn't a place fit for purpose. So he was just an opportunist and saw you know, the value that IPI was providing the athletes at Boletary and said, well, let me do this at scale. And so you're, you're spot on. So I think he start, you know, started in 98 in literally an old Staples, and you know they were throwing medicine balls through uh, – through, through, through the walls until they could finally get into their facility that ended up on ASU's campus. But, yeah, he just saw a need, and he filled it. I mean, Mark Verstegen is one of the true entrepreneurs of our industry. Say what you will about his intelligence on methodology and training systems and coaching, which is second to none, but as, as an individual that has a business mind, to take an idea and scale it, I mean, it, it's absolutely unbelievable. I think of guys like him and John Berardi and Cosgrove, you know, and Greg Cook, they're right up there, but he's done something truly special. And, and that's what I wanted to, you know, that's the reason for the trip down memory lane, Nick, is not to do any type of historical review, but I wanted listeners to know that this, what we're doing now, a lot of what we're doing now is relatively new in the last maybe two decades. And where I wanted to go with this is the benefit of systems. 
you know, like right now, yes. I, I mentioned before we before I hit record, is I'm starting to work with, you know, these. One was a former uh, intern of mine, and they've been two two kids, for lack of a better term, that I've been mentoring. But their business has now grown to the point of where they need one of the gray hairs to come in and help them develop a system. <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of starting to help them do that and to help them scale that because you when you start working with a lot of with a lot of athletes, they deal primarily with high school athletes. But when you start working with a lot of people, you need a system. So why, how important was this, the, the, the process of a system when you were, you know, in your previous experience, and how did that help you in terms of your approach to conditioning? Oh, it's everything. I mean, for me, I think I always had an affinity for systems thinking, uh, even before I went to, uh, you know, to athletes' performance. I remember reading Verstegen's book, his red book, most will remember, and Great Cook's FMS, and both of those things spoke to me because they were very repeatable. They had flexibility, but they allowed you to be quite consistent with your approach and thus hopefully the results that you can promote. And when I, when I got to Exos, or Athletes Performance at the time, it was remarkable how much of the focus was on the training system and the training methodology. And a lot of people say, okay, we have a movement prep, and then a, a pillar prep and plyometrics, and they have their components. But these individuals, Mark Verstegen Lee, took it to a whole nother level. And that movement prep had four components. Each of the components had, you know, three different iterations based on direction, type, and speed. And inevitably, it allowed you, in having great discipline and structure, it also allowed you to systematically have more creativity because it gave you the paintbrush, it gave you the tools, it gave you the knobs, so to speak, that you could manipulate to progress and regress, but doing so in a very systematic way so you could track progress against system changes over, over time. And if it was something that could fall into a system, ultimately that's what we were doing at Athlete Performance. And you know what's cool about it, Pete, is it allowed us to – get programming down on paper so much quicker because we weren't, we weren't giving everyone the same vanilla program, but we had a process and a mindset for creating programs. And because it allowed us to get the program down methodologically sound so quickly, I think what it afforded us is the chance to spend more of our thinking and our time on coaching and thinking about coaching and not just the what of the program, but how we were going to bring it to life. So fast forward, I know we'll get to it. Now that I'm with Irish Rugby, I'm following suit with Verstegen. Everything that can be systematized and put into a mental model with appropriate levels of flexibility, uh, that's exactly how we're approaching what we do across the various facets of strength, power, conditioning, recovery, uh, sports science, and whatnot. So I think it's everything, and it's about having a mental model. It's about learning to think better. That's what systems give you the benefit of. Well, and that, that ties into my next question, Nick, and I'm glad you brought up your affiliation with Irish Rugby because when I saw you got that appointment, you know, how familiar, you're a kid who grew up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, you probably grew up in all the American sports. How in the heck did you end up with the Irish Rugby Football Union? <laughs> and and, and how was it, what was that process like? I, like a lot of us, you probably saw the rugby team, you know, maybe play a game and get crazy drunk at college, but what was the process like for you to learn a new sport that you had never worked with? Yeah, it's a question I get a lot from both, you know, Irish individuals as, as well as 
Americans, like, how the heck did you get the job? And I'll make a brief point on that before, you know, I, I talk about the transition into the role. The simple thing is, one, a network. I mean, in, in 2015, I knew I was coming to the end of my Ph.D., and I wanted to make a shift. And I specifically wanted to make a shift overseas. And a lot of people say, why? For me, you are such a product of your environment. And I knew if I truly wanted to grow as a person and a professional, I had to put myself in quite literally a foreign environment, both in country and possibly in sport. So I looked all over the world, everywhere outside of the American borders. And in, in doing so, just I had a, a mutual colleague of my now boss, David Nusifora, and David was looking to freshen up his, his high-performance sector from an S&C perspective. And the role that I'm in, we can get into it if you'd like, is quite diverse. It requires coaching. It requires coaching coaches, systems thinking, education. Uh, every day is a little bit different. And funny enough, albeit I had never worked with rugby per se, the actual operating environment and the diversity was quite similar to where I was currently at in my leadership role at Exos at the time. So ultimately in 2016, you know, my wife and I d decided to make the move, and it's been absolutely amazing to come over and work in not only a different culture of sport, but a different culture in general. And so to the question of how did I make the transition, I think strength and conditioning in general is a highly transferable skill. You know, you hear the likes of Jeremy Shepherds and Mike Boyles and Greg Cooks and others, you know, talk about movement is movement is movement. And every sport likes to think that they're unique, but I think strength conditioning coaches can see through that. And ultimately, I had to learn the culture of the sport, the terminology, obviously the rules and the positions. But those are things that you can learn quite quickly. Ultimately, once I got past those labels and concepts and categories, for me, it was just watching people move on the pitch. And albeit they throw the ball backwards instead of forwards, and it's continuous versus intermittent, and the conditioning demands on rugby players is far more than the American footballers I was used to, ultimately being able to maneuver in space, get around a body in space, stop a body from getting around you, I was quite familiar with those movement concepts and, and those movement shapes, if you would, and the physical qualities underpinning them. And thus, after about six months to a year, I felt I had learned the language, and I was able to start converting my knowledge as an S&C coach into the language of rugby. And, you know, four years in, I'm still learning. But I, I think I've made a, a fairly smooth transition into the role. Well, and, and just just so you know, I listened to a couple podcasts uh, that that, uh, that you did uh, talking about I, your your role with IR, IRFU, and yeah, you got the terminology down. So it's kind of it's kind of refreshing to hear that. But the reason why I asked that yeah. is, is, is I have a pretty diverse audience. I get your general consumers, but I also get your professionals. And I wanted I want the fitness professionals out there to know that if you understand movement, if you have if you understand movement as a language, then you can work with almost any client. I mean, that's your experience, right, is that if you understand the principles of movement and you have a system like you created, then you can work with almost anybody, regardless of the sport or background. I mean, that's correct, right? Pete, Pete I, was, I was a personal trainer for six years, and as you know, every person you meet as a personal trainer is, is an N of one. You know, I've worked with just about every professional sport in America, elite military, Olympic athletes, and now rugby. I don't say that to toot my own horn, but just to echo your point. 
if you have a systematic way to think about developing movement and the underpinning qualities, physical qualities that support movement, I 100% agree you are a highly transferable asset in the world of movement. And I think that's important for trainers to hear because that is one reason for education. But it's also important, I think, for the consumer to hear because, you know, exercise, if you hear Nick and I talking, we're not talking about exercises. He's not talking about training chess for rugby players. You're talking about developing skill development. So what, what role, you know, especially that you're, you know, you, I didn't realize you studied under Guido, um, but talk a little bit about variability and the role that movement plays as opposed to just doing an exercise for a muscle group. So people use the word variability quite a bit. Now, the fact that you've nodded that you know Guido, I, I have a sense of what you mean. But maybe even for me in the audience, take that a step deeper. What, what do you mean by the use of variability versus just an exercise? Well, and, that, and thank you. Yeah, you're right. And for the audience, what I'm talking about is most of the time when you're doing an exercise, you might be doing a biceps curl and you're doing it straight up and down against gravity. But when you look at how you use your body, the only place you lift the weight straight up and down is the gym. Any other time you're moving a load or moving a mass, you're moving it through space, and you're never going yeah. in the same linear pattern. So that's what I mean by variability is the fact that the body yeah. has to constantly program against unknown variables as it's moving through space. So that's my, I mean, okay. you know, just, and yeah. I don't know if you know this, but I worked with Michelle and IOM for a couple of years, yeah. um, helping him develop education. So that's where, that's where I was drilled in. Some of these principles were drilled into me. So just, you know, and for listeners, I mean, there's, there's a various language, there's a language there. And I, I can post a link to it to an article I wrote a while back about about movement variability. But what role does yeah. movement variability play in your approach to programming and like exercise selection? Yeah, no, completely get it now. So, just a, a couple bits of terminology for the listeners that'll probably echo what you have in your article. So, uh, uh, before we get into the word variability, we typically talk about two different kind of task demands. So let's put our mindset onto uh, a football field right now, maybe even a soccer field. I think that's a very easy one for people to think of. And the two different types of, of skills that we can have people go through is what we call closed skills or open skills. So in a closed skill, typically we throw the word drill at it. So that's where I might set up some cones, possibly set up uh, an agility ladder, whatever it might be and that I know exactly what I'm going to do. If I'm doing the agility ladder, I know the exact movement. I know how long I'm doing it. There, there's no guesswork. There's no sudden reaction involved. If I'm taking a shot on goal from the same part of the field over and over again, and I know the conditions, I'm self-regulating when I kick the ball. There's no defender in front of me. It, it's closed. It's predictable. I control the pace. That's analogous to your bicep curl example, Pete, right? The other side is an open skill, and that is now, okay, well, I, I would never use a ladder if I'm doing an open skill, but if I'm going back to my soccer example, now instead of just shooting on an open goal, maybe there's a goalkeeper in there. So now that adds a point of uh, lack of predictability on my end. I'm trying to react to what I think that goalkeeper is going to do. Add further a defender. So now I have to navigate the defender plus the goalkeeper. That's two very dynamic variables. And now add, okay, I have three opponents in front of me, and I have two teammates. And now we're on a 3v3 working on half of the field plus a live goalkeeper. Well, now I've exponentially increased the amount of variables that I have to deal with. 
So we think of variability in a lot of the ways as the amount of possible solutions to solve a given problem. So I could kick on goal. I could pass. I could try to go around the defender. I could pass, move around the defender, then receive the ball, then kick. There's probably infinite combinations of ways to put the ball in the back of the net once we get to that 3v3 example. And so with each of those compounding levels of variability or complexity, guess what my body has to do? My body has to be able to move or adapt to achieve each of those outcomes. So when we talk about movement variability in a sporting context, we're often talking about the ability of context-specific movement or open skill development. Do you have the movement skills to adapt or react to the environment in front of you, to adapt to the oncoming defender, to be able to adapt to the divot in the field that would normally cause you to roll your ankle? Can you respond quickly without rolling your ankle, or do you have a robust lower limb, for example? So in my world, a lot of what we refer to in the terms of variability is creating the actual conditions, the authentic sporting conditions that your body then needs to adapt to. So that if all I ever do with rugby or soccer is that fixed drill where I just kick on an open goal, I might get really good at kicking the ball into the goal or really good if it's rugby kicking the ball over the post. But the second I add any layers of complexity, i.e. defenders, even if I've developed that movement, that movement is basically going to be inadequate because it wasn't developed in the authentic environment that it needs to be expressed. And that's a conundrum in sport because oftentimes we like to train in such a way that allows us to become really, really accurate, really accurate with the pass, really accurate with the kick. But oftentimes to get that acute accuracy, I have to take away complexity. I have to take away variability. But ultimately, sport is variable. Sport is chaotic. Sport is open. And thus we have to strike the right balance of developing the physical skill in a closed environment to build my confidence and capability, but then also enough exposure of having to apply that in these highly variable conditions. Let's zoom in now to the gym briefly for those that maybe aren't as sport-minded. A lot of then what we do on the gym is, okay, if we're lunging, well, why always just lunge straight ahead? If we look at any of Gary Gray's work or you mentioned Michelle's work, let's lunge with a rotation. Let's lunge with an implement. Because if we fast forward now into life, if I'm dealing with the groceries and all of a sudden an orange drops out of my bag, I'm going to have to lunge forward with an awkward position to catch that uh, carton of eggs or that orange, which might not look akin to our pristine, perfect lunge pattern. So within the gym, then, it's a matter of bringing in functional variability, which is just to say developing movement that's authentic to the reactive conditions life are going to throw at it. Hopefully that wasn't too much mumbo-jumbo, kind of a long answer, but that cool. kind of gives you the scale of high-performance sport and gym. Well, and that, that, that exemplifies, Nick, your experience of, of having worked and communicated with so many different athletes because you broke that down in such a way, and that's going to take us right into the next thread because, you know, for listeners, in American sports, a lot of American sports, you're given a specific play. Do X, do Y. You know, if you're a, if you're a running back, you're going through the A gap and you're making this cut. You know, you're given very specific patterns. How different was it, Nick, for you to adjust your coaching style 
to a sport like rugby that doesn't teach specific plays, but it teaches more thought processes. You know, like what I try yes. to teach players is every time every, you want to think about one of three, you want to have three things in your mind. You want to, are you supporting? Are you taking the offload? You know, you want to know one of three things that you're going to do. I try to simple it down for them. So how difficult was it for you to make that adjustment from a sport that's very, you know, close oriented like football to one that's very open and variable like rugby? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And that's one of the reasons I love rugby is because whether it's sevens or 15, those are the two different versions of the game, seven people on the field versus 15 people on the field. Um, like you said, when it's American football, each person has a very specific role. And if I'm the quarterback, my role is always going to be different than the left tackle, you know? Whereas in rugby, everybody has to pass. Everybody has to catch, and feasibly everybody could share every responsibility on the field on both sides of the ball outside of the very specific line-out and scrum that is primarily executed by the forwards, okay? But in terms of open play, if you just turn on and watch rugby open play, everybody needs to have the skill set more or less to do everything. If you just map that onto American football context, you can quickly see why the sport is so difficult. And the reality is you don't get that break, you know, every 20 to 30 seconds to settle the mind and get the new play from the coach. The coach is up in a box, and sure they can run information out to the players via the people delivering the water or the medical staff, but more or less the players have to self-coach, self-regulate. So when we to answer your question then, when I looked at rugby, it's just what you said there, Pete. I tried to break it down into all of its instances. And that on the attacking or the offensive side of the ball, we have kind of this piece that we call the ruck. And the ruck is more like scrimmaging when it comes to American football. And that it creates the, the line of scrimmage or the line of play that the defensive and the offensive side have to respect. So, there are specific physical skills on both the defensive and the offensive side of the ball in creating a ruck, which has to do with how you tackle, how you get tackled, right? Uh, how you clear out or how you, how you clean out on either side of the ball. So when I looked at that, I'm like, okay, those are discrete skills that the rugby coaches are teaching. There are fundamental movement skills such as squatting and flexing and hinging that support those. Right? But they're going to take care of the decision-making and, if you would, the open skill set. My job is to work on the movement skills and the physical qualities that support that. So if you think of that as a microcosm, I then just simply applied that thinking to, okay, open field movement on the offensive side, how do I carry the ball? How do I sidestep or cut or change direction around an oncoming defender? If I'm on the defensive side of the ball, how do I track, literally in space, how do I track that oncoming attacker or offensive player? Uh, how do I move into the defensive line forwards or backwards to be ready to track that oncoming offensive or attacking player? And so what I did is I kind of put my American football brain on and I broke the sport down on both sides of the ball to all the little movement scenarios, Pete. And once I looked at all the movement scenarios, I then asked the question, which part of the movement scenario is the rugby coach focusing on? 
and which part of the movement scenario are they not focusing on? And thus what myself and our broader team do is we focus on the movement component that they're not specifically looking at and then all of the physical weight room-based qualities that support both of those. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. I mean, and, and for listeners, uh, one of the things that, I mean, because you've had an impact. I mean, Ireland, what, Ireland won the Six Nations this year, right? Uh, 20, 2018, we won the Grand Slam. Uh, 2019 was, was not our year. Wales, Wales won. Uh, but okay. we have had some great success across all the levels over the last couple of years, and very much so that's a team effort. So. And, and, and that's exactly it. But just like, like since you've been there, Nick, I think Ireland, the, the uh, national team, has really stepped up. And I know they played well in the recent World Cup. So let's talk a little bit about the language of coaching because that's what you're known for. And I just, I was before we logged on today, I was noticing that you posted your, uh, you know, you posted a notice about about your upcoming book. Because um, I want to talk a little bit about coaching and why the language is so powerful. Because for listeners, you know, American football, you have this whole mindset about you have a coach on the sideline yelling. And what Nick alluded to that's amazing about rugby is there's not a, a the coach for the most part is not that involved in the in the game. The coach is up in the stands watching the match and the players have to do that so you know talk about that a little bit in terms of just how the language of coaching can really empower the athletes as opposed to try to beat them down yeah so you know let, the book is called the language of coaching but i could have equally called it uh the thought of movement or movement thoughts because ultimately when a coach communicates with an athlete or a player, you know, or a trainer with a client or a physical therapist with a patient, when we provide them with a, a coaching cue, we are operating under a very simple assumption in that I give you a cue. Let's say I'm working with a NFL combine guy and it's sprinting. So the cue might be, I want you to explode off the line. So when I say the cue, I want you to explode off the line for, from an acceleration perspective, I'm assuming then what? That that athlete is going to somehow take that cue and turn it into a thought over alternative thoughts that is going to help them, in fact, explode off the line. So my words turn into their thoughts, which manifest in impact how they move. So when you think about it from that perspective, it's like, wow, that's a pretty awesome phenomenon. That I can have a thought in my head, craft it into a vocalization, which is just sound waves. You can, as the athlete, receive those sound waves and transcribe them into a thought and then use that thought to move better. Like, I don't know about you, Pete, but that is a pretty freaking cool idea. And when we look at all movement workers, I use movement workers as a terminology of anyone, a sport coach, uh, a parent with a kid in the park, to a strength coach, personal trainer, physical therapist. If you're in that space, you are using language as much, if not more, than any other means to influence, nudge, and pivot the way your client, athlete, patient moves. But when I was up and coming, late 90s, early 2000s, I don't know about your experience, Pete, I didn't have any education on that. People gave me plenty of insights on programming, reps, and sets, 
periodization, movement screening, all that I collectively call the what we do. But nobody really gave me concrete insight on how to do it, how to coach. And even back then, what did we call it? We still call it today the art of coaching which simply suggests that it's up to preference. It's a soft skill. You've got to kind of figure it out on the run. It's going to take time. And while that is true, there's very much an art to coaching. There's also an immense science that can, I think, accelerate your application of the art. And that science comes down to how language impacts focus and how focus impacts the way we move. And the broad strokes, because we can get into the detailed questions here, 20 years plus of research has now mined down into how what someone thinks while they move impacts significantly how they move, both from a coordination, so movement quality, and an outcome, movement performance perspective. So once I got onto this research and ran my own coaching through it as, as a filtration system, all of a sudden I realized, wow, this is making an immense difference right now in my athletes. But more importantly, I've got to go tell everyone I can find about this because this is the freaking missing link when it comes to coach development and ongoing coach professional development because we talk about the what, the X's and O's all the time, but we leave people to sort out the how, the coaching piece on their own. And the reality is we're doing nobody favors by approaching our development in such a way, and you know who inadvertently suffers? The athlete, the client, and the patient. So the language of coaching for me is a massive worldwide statement that says, hey, movement workers of the world, we've been missing this piece. Let's bring it on board. Let's champion that how we coach is as important as what we coach. Well, and that's where I think some of your work has been so important, right? You know, I, when I went through Gary's gift program back in 2007, you know, a lot of it was based on the language of movement and how do we get people to move better? How do we describe movement? How do we quantify movement? How do we write out and, and, just, and put movement on paper so people can do that? And so I think, Nick, what you've done is taken a step further and identified those aspects that you're right. The best trainers in the gym haven't necessarily been the top salespeople but the best trainers and instructors have always been the ones that connect best with their clients. Now, there's one specific area of cueing that, that, you, that I know you've done your work on, and I think you, you did your Ph.D. work on that. And I might – attention to focus. Is it attentional focus or attention, attention to focus? But I think it's attentional focus, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll, for, the, for the listeners, if you go on Google Scholar PubMed and look up the science of cueing, you're not going to find anything, right? And that's what I was doing. I was trying to find how do I give better cues? How do I use language better? Inevitably, I found out, Pete, yes, what they, in, in motor learning, the science of learning to move, in motor learning, what we're talking about is referred to as focus of attention or attentional focus. And all it's saying is how we focus affects how we move. And ultimately, as coaches, we impact focus via our language, primarily. So you use it, and that's what I like, Nick, is you're using your language to communicate and connect with players because for years we have this, this image of a coach standing on the sidelines yelling at the player. How ineffective, how worthless is it? <laughs> Obviously you can hear my, my perspective on that, but how meaningless <laughs> is it to, to yell at a player, yell at an athlete 
whether coaching during, in practice or during a match or during a game. So it goes back actually to your last question. The reason that we call this area of coaching science and motor learning attentional focus is because when I ask someone to think about something, I'm actually asking them to pay attention. Literally, I'm asking them to invest their minimal real estate, their, their small spotlight of attention or focus, those are synonymous terms, to a thought that's meant to help them move better, okay? So when we look at, when we talk about language and we talk about thinking while we move, we have to take a step back as coaches. And that is there are three things that we have to do uh, as coaches if we want our words to get into their legs, so to speak, okay? And the first thing we have to do is we have to capture attention. Like literally, they have to be paying attention to us before they can listen and apply what we're about to say. So let's stay on the capture piece. If I'm just screaming at 15 players from the sideline and they're focusing on not getting whacked by the opposing side, do you think that that person's attention is prioritizing what the coach on the sideline is saying? I, I think the listeners would say not. So oftentimes the coach yelling from the sideline at a fast-paced game is yelling for their own sanity. They feel that if they can just get the words out into the ether, they can sleep well at night because at least they saw what was going wrong, even though the athletes couldn't sort it out for themselves, okay? So the, the opposite of doing that is in sports where there's a timeout, it's taking the timeout. It's waiting for halftime. It's waiting for the drill to be over. It's waiting for the set in the weight room to be over, where now their attention is off the task and can be back on the coach to be re-equipped with some kind of an idea that could help them perform better the next time they're back in the midst of performing. Okay, so one, the conditions have to be right so I can capture attention. Once I capture attention, I have to keep attention. So you've already used the word earlier, Pete, connect. So to keep attention, I have to say things to an athlete that are interesting. So let me give the audience a real example. Again, let's go back to my, my sprinter, my collegiate athlete preparing for the NFL Combine. If I'm trying to teach them to start better, to accelerate off the line better, I could give a cue like, okay, to get off the line, I want you to focus on exploding through your hips. So that would be a reasonable cue someone might give. Or I could say, I want you to explode off the line like there's a venomous snake right about to snap your ankle. Now, you tell me, which one is going to be easier to remember and keep your attention? Thinking about exploding through your hips or thinking about getting off the line because a rattlesnake is about to put two puncture wounds in your calf. I think <laughs> I could be wrong, Pete. I'm going to go with the latter. If I'm in Vegas and that's a bet, I'm going to go and put all my money on the second <laughs> one. Okay? And so that's just a micro example of how language can be used effectively to keep attention. Because it's not only keeping it at their attention while you're talking to them. No, you want them to continue to focus on that thing while they perform the movement. So that's then the final piece. I capture attention, I keep attention, and then I need to direct it. 
And by directing it, it's like a conductor. Where should I point the mental spotlight? And this is where in the world of attentional focus, we typically talking about directing attention to one of two broad categories. And let me emphasize the word broad. I can either direct attention to the movement of the body, so extend the hip, squeeze the glute, chest up, tighten the abs, drive off the big toe. It's some kind of anatomical, joint-based, muscle-based, kinesiological language. And we collectively call those internal cues or an internal focus. So I could point their mental spotlight at that. And if, if the listeners just take a quick inventory of how they cue, I would imagine that a lot of their language comes from their biomechanical textbook, their kinesiological textbook. And the vast majority of the words they use reference some body part or muscle. The other category is you leave the perimeter of the body, and instead of telling them, talking about movement process, extend the hip, you talk about movement outcome, push the ground away. Ah, so push the ground away now says, okay, I'm going to leave your joints, you know, your hip, your knee, your ankle to sort this out, but I'm just going to give your collection of joints a single outcome to be achieved. Push the ground away, or even broader, I want you to sprint through the 10-yard line as fast as you can. Or push the ground away, or try to touch the ceiling if it was a vertical jump. Or push the bar away from the bench, or drive the bar through the ceiling, right? So these are all different examples of outcome-based cues. And we collectively call those outcome-based cues external cues, external from the body. So these two categories have basically been sparring partners, if I can use that metaphor, for the better part of 20 years of research. And the punchline is one of those categories of cues is far better than the other one in promoting improved coordination, movement performance, efficiency, at any other variable, strength, endurance, power, you name it, one of those categories is undefeated, Pete, when it comes to the way it promotes movement. And what we now know is, if, if, you, if you guess, if you had to bet on one, it's the external cues. It's the external focus. And that includes the use of analogies or figurative language because the analogy I gave you around the snake biting the ankle is still promoting the outcome of getting off the line fast. I just put it in a mental context that is a bit more visually rich and memorable, okay? So collectively then, external cues and analogies with over 160 papers, Pete, beats the living you-know-what out of internal cues again and again and again. Now, I have to put a disclaimer on this because if, if people just stop the podcast there, they're going to be like, this guy's a charlatan. He's like everybody else saying that this is the, the solve, fix all. That's not what I'm saying. If you go to the research, that's kind of what it feels like. But what I'm saying is the last idea, Pete, the last idea you put in their head before they move, i.e. the thing they should focus on while they move, should be unequivocally as many times as you can, more often than not, 99.9% .9 approval rating, should be an external focus or an analogy. Now, if 30 seconds or a minute before they move, I want to give them some context. Hey, you're about to do a sprint. To sprint, I want to see good extension at the hip, the knee, the ankle. Chest up. Go for your life. 
You can explain and describe the movement using internal language. No issue at all there. All that I'm encouraging people to do is the period at the end of the sentence, Pete, the last thing you say to them is, okay, to do that, to get that triple extension, I want you to focus on this. And that's the explode off the line, get away from the snake, right? These are the cues that wrap all that technical jargon into a simple thought that is easy to plug into the mind and plays nice with movement. And I talk about that in my book as the describe it, demonstrate it, cue it, do it, brief it model. In that in going through that process, all I'm asking people to do is make sure the last idea they put in the head is external cue or an analogy. And I'm being slightly but purposely long-winded here because the key thing is in my book and in my recommendations, which the science supports, it's not that I'm telling people to abandon their use of internal language. No, I'm talking about reorganizing the order you use language to optimize understanding and application when it comes to movement. And I want to back that up, Nick, because I read you wrote an article for Idea Fitness Journal a few years ago on this on this topic, and, and a lot of listeners yes. uh, might be members of Idea, and they can go on to to the website and find um, it, it, what was the name of the article. I know I know it's on you. Know, you published it, and I'm I'm blanking on it right now. I can see the image of it. Like I have a very visual memory, yeah. but but for listeners, when I, after I read that article and I started applying these methods of queuing. Like one studio I taught in, Nick, had a window facing the bay, like the, a, a little bay in Carlsbad, and the other side was a wall. So I would always have people either rotate towards the window or rotate towards the wall. And I have to tell you, just yeah. being able to clean up that language made my job as instructor, trainer, coach a heck of a lot easier. You know, all those, you yeah. know, because I was trying to, and I, I know a lot of people get in this trap. We try to overcomplicate it by showing how much technical stuff they know, but I've really had to unlearn that. And I try to be simple, and sometimes people look at me like, well, why aren't you using technical language? And I'm like, technical language doesn't matter. You know, it really doesn't matter at all. Well, Pete, here's where it matters. It matters because, it, one, it, it can sound good to the, to the listener, okay? And I have a lot of athletes and clients in the past that wanted the technical language. And not only did I have to unlearn it, they had to unlearn it. And that's where this little hack comes in that you can explain the movement in the level of detail you feel is most appropriate. Probably your nine-year-old doesn't care about the biomechanics of the hip in their sprint, but, you know, your engineering client might, okay? So yeah, you can explain right. Yeah, You can explain that. My key thing is that you, you, can't, you take that deep breath. Okay, now, to do that, here's what I want you to focus on. And the reality is that it's, it's a win-win. It's having your cake and eating it, too. You feel good that you've given them the technical knowledge. If they're the person that wants it, they feel good. But then you've put an idea in their head that plays nice with the way people like to move. And ultimately, that's the key. And you're, you're, you're bang on in that the reason coaches like to use technical language to coach, think about it, is – that is all we were ever taught. Yep. You're taught yeah. from your anatomy book, your physiology book, your biometrics book, your kinesiology book. And even if you look at most of the human kinetics books, which are my publisher, there's a ton of technical description 
for most of the exercises. And people confused, inadvertently, a movement description for a coaching cue. They're not the mm. same thing. Describing a movement should not be synonymous with how I coach it, i.e., we were left to defend for ourselves. We had to try to navigate a narrative which we thought were the cues we were meant to be using, but they weren't. So where our industry needs to evolve is it was a failure of omission. It's not that what we're teaching people is wrong, but we have inadvertently copy and pasted all that technical language into our vernacular. And we need mm. to absolutely eradicate it from the last idea we put in the head. It can be its neighbor, but we're not inviting it over dinner, Pete. The last <laughs> idea that goes of your head needs to be an external cure and analogy, and I'll put my career on that. Well, and I appreciate the clarification on that. And now to get ready to wrap this up, because I respect your time, for listeners that may not have seen the Rugby World Cup, and, and I'm not doing this to, to ride you guys, but actually, you know, because I think it, it shows the power of coaching, I, I couldn't find the full match, Nick, but I, was, I tried to watch the, the match between Ireland and New Zealand in, what was it, the quarterfinal round this year? Yes. In, in the World Cup. And I want you to talk a little bit about, can you talk a little bit about just how you because going into the locker room at halftime, Ireland was down. I think New Zealand put on one or two scores right towards the end of the first half. The question yeah. I have is, how did you turn? Because Ireland came out and, and regrouped and, and put on a really good second half. What was, take us to the scene in the locker room, if you will, briefly. And how did the coaches, the coaching staff engage the players? Or did the players kind of take responsibility for themselves? Like how did, you know, from a coaching perspective, what was the shift that happened that allowed the athletes to come out in the second half. And, and for listeners, you have to understand the New Zealand All Blacks are one of the top teams in the world. So just going onto the pitch with them can be very intimidating. And, and Ireland had the ability, but how did you overcome that first half deficit using the language of coaching? Well, oh, Pete, that's a complex one. You, you've, it is. Uh, it's you've huge. Yeah. There. So we, um, and, and you and I probably need to make sure we're thinking about the same game. So, I mean, our, our, you know, ultimately we lost to New Zealand by a significant margin uh, in that, in that quarterfinal. Uh, we have, though, on two prior occasions uh, defeated New Zealand. One was in the uh, 2018 November series and then in uh, the 2016 November series where we played them in Chicago and actually won for the first time. So, you know, Ireland for the first time in history, 2016 forward, uh, were able to, to defeat New Zealand, which is massive uh, for a very small nation. But against New Zealand in the World Cup, it, was, it definitely was not our day. And full credit to New Zealand, they are a absolutely phenomenal side. Uh, I'll speak more generally because I, I do honestly feel it would be a, a more appropriate way to answer your question. You well, know, if I, I can cut, sorry, Nick, if I can yeah. cut in, and I do apologize because you're right. I, I wasn't too, I wanted to focus more on the, the positive aspect of coaching. Like yeah. when, you're, when you're looking, and that's why I was asking the question is when you're looking at an insurmountable, when you're faced against a really tough challenge, how do you focus the coaching to, to keep, to keep yes. the attitude up, to keep their positive energy up? That's, that's why I was asking uh, that uh, question. So a hundred percent. I'm glad we got that point of clarity. A hundred percent. And, I think the key thing is with, with our with our coaching group, they are they're masters of of clarity. I think this is true of, of any coach in that they pursue clarity. 
And when you get into these moments, and when we get into these moments where we are down, uh, oftentimes it is about recentering, or sometimes we call it rugby, we call it you know a play in American football, we call a phase. And we refer to this as next phase focus, or having really good short-term memory loss. So when it comes to the locker room, you know, at the international level, you're, you're dealing with grown grown men in the case of the men's game. And we have to go back to the coach's job is to remind them of who they are, what they've done, and the clarity of the kind of game that we want to play. Um, ultimately, if you try to go into a halftime talk and coach, and by coach I mean add new stuff to the, to, to the mental itinerary of all the other stuff they're supposed to be doing, then you've already lost them. I believe. But what our coaches, I believe, do a very good job of is they actually try to take stuff off the mental plate. And we'll say things like, we're doing too much. We're trying too hard. Let's go back to our two to three core fundamentals that we as a group decided were going to be our focus point on the defensive side of the ball, the offensive side of the ball, and in our set pieces. And let's absolutely put all of our focus into nailing those. And you know the other thing I think oftentimes great coaches will say to players is, you know what, go out and have fun. You've, you've freaking put in the work. We've done it time and time again. Your history, your success over the last X amount of months has shown you're the best in the world. You can be the best in the world and beat the best in the world. This is inside of every person in this room, and you don't need us to tell you that. But maybe right now you needed a reminder. Let's go out and play, let's have a bit of fun, and let's give it our best. And you know what? I think for some that might sound cheesy, but if you're going to try to bring some kind of new groundbreaking knowledge at a halftime talk or in a very troublesome moment in any sport, uh, you're missing a trick, and, and, you're, and you're reading off the wrong playbook, in my opinion. So ultimately, it's back to clarity, back to basics, back to simplicity, and reminding people of what they've done to get there. Because to make a World Cup, let alone a quarterfinal, is an amazing achievement by any standard. And I think that at times just needs to be the reminder that's put forward. And ultimately, you said it, the culture of rugby is a culture of it's a player-led sport. And thus, when you listen to the likes of our leadership, the Rory Bess, the Jonathan Sexton, these were the individuals whose voices needed to be the strongest in driving those messages as much as a, as a Joe Schmidt or an Andy Farrell. And, and thank you. That's why I asked the question, Nick, is, is that I wanted you to answer, how do you group a, a team together when they're facing you know, very challenging advers- you know, adversity? You know, because yeah. you're right. I, I have to tell you, just you talking there, I was looking around for my scrum cap and my mouth guard because I'm ready to go out and get in the front row. <laughs> you know, because you're right. Everybody yeah. plays to yeah. play at the top level. Everybody plays to play yeah. against the best competition. And, and the, finally, so I appreciate that. And I really, I was asking that question. I wasn't trying to dig at Ireland or anything like yeah, that. You I just wanted you, with, with, your, with your background of coaching, how do you overcome that? And the final question I have, Nick, is if you, were, if you grew up playing rugby, if you grew up in Rugby Nation, what position would you be? Oh, goodness. Well, I, I can tell you right now, knowing me, I'd want to be a winger. <laughs> I'd want to be a winger. <laughs> I also want to be a receiver and that's why I coach speed because I've always I've, I've lived vicariously through people that were far more athletic and fast than me but in, in looking at the game and the body size 
you know, I'd, I'd probably be an eight. Or if they wanted to put, you know, uh, 20 kilos on me, they'd probably put me in at, uh, at, at hooker possibly or a prop. My body profile probably is more fitting to that. But, you know, at, at six foot, I might be able to sneak in at the club level playing eight. Yeah, no, I, I definitely – what's that? The quarterback of the forwards. So. Well, and for, for people that might not be familiar, and that's exactly it, the eight man's like kind of a combination of your quarterback and middle linebacker. You have to be able yeah, to, to exactly. run the show. And I, I was too dumb to play that. I was too slow to be a flanker and, and, and not fast enough to be a center. So they stuck me in the, in the front row as a hooker. Yeah. And I, I got really, really good at making my line-out throws. I can, that's the only reason why I played at the top level, Nick. The only reason why I played in the premiership is I used to practice my butt off making my throws, and I can get that, yeah. I could get that ball anywhere in the line-out. So, hey, I appreciate your time. How can people follow you? Because I know you put a lot of information up. If people listen to this and they're like, oh, my God, what's he talking about? Where can people find some of your notes? And obviously, you know, I'm going to post a link to your book, but, you know, do a little drop for your book again. Yeah. So I'll start with where to find me. So uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Nick Winkleman. Uh, I put all of my slides from all of my presentations on SlideShare, which is LinkedIn's kind of PowerPoint website. So on SlideShare, again, it's Nick Winkleman. There's a, there's quite a bit of content on there, and I typically get pretty good feedback. But Instagram and Twitter are probably where I'm, I'm most active. I do treat it like a microblog and try to only put things out there that are relevant uh, to coaching. Uh, insofar as the book, the, the book is being published by Human Kinetics, uh, the, the long title, again, is The Language of Coaching, The Art and Science of Teaching Movement. It is currently available for pre-order on, on Apple and Amazon, and it will ship. It'll drop uh, April 2020, so next April. Yeah, I'm going to have that link below, and I'm looking forward to that book, Nick. Having read your articles and seen you speak and, and seen, you know, gone through some of your slides, um, I'm really looking forward to having a, a resource like, like this book that can help coaching, you know, you know, from both whether I do rugby or whether I'm working with clients. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. And really, Nick, I appreciate your time and making time to speak with the listeners of All About Fitness. Oh, peace. It's my pleasure. And it's individuals like you that are trying to progress our industry. So thank you. You know, before I get into the wrap-up for that conversation, and, and there's a lot there to wrap up and, and to bring home, if you are looking for the type of exercise, if you're looking for a resource for the type of exercise that can enhance your quality of life, by all means, uh, look down below in the show notes, pick up a copy of Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. You know, the, the stuff I've been doing for 20 years, uh, the coaching I've been doing, the, the exercise you know, programming I've put putting together are in that book. And, and literally, exercise can help you slow down and manage the aging process. And that's what I put in that book. So, Check below in the show notes, the science, uh, sorry, Smarter Workouts, the science of exercise made simple. If you want to support the podcast, that's how you can do it. Pick up a copy, and it will significantly enhance your quality of life. I, I do promise you that. Now, that was, again, that was my inner geek coming out, and I, and I apologize to Nick when we got off. I wasn't trying to throw him, I wasn't trying to, to, to put down Irish rugby by mentioning the fact that they were down in New Zealand. What I wanted him to talk about was when you are faced with insurmountable odds, whether you're an individual or you're, whether you're a coach, how do you get your athletes together so they go back out there? I've been on the receiving end. I mean, I've been on the receiving end. And when you get at halftime, you're going, man, we got to go out and play another 40 minutes of this. That's not easy. But he's right. 
Do you know why we play? We play for each other. We play for the other men on the pitch. We play because we want to get better. And it doesn't matter if we're down by five or we're down by 50. Anytime you step on that pitch, you should step on there with that mindset of we're playing together as a team or we're playing to get just 1% better. And that's why I wanted to have Nick on is we have this perception. I, I mentioned this one or two times in the discussion is we have this perception of coaches need to be do this, do that, go, 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 yell. But in reality, when you look at, you know, when you look at the rugby culture, you know, I, I'm, I'm starting to coach high school rugby again, and I'm coaching with a couple of South Africans. They don't yell at the players. They don't. You know, they grew up in the South African rugby. You know, South Africa is one of the, well, South Africa just won the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup. South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, England, Ireland, these are the, the leading rugby nations in the world. I mean, they really are. And there is a culture there of coaches that don't yell at players. One of the most impactful coaches I had was a guy by the name of Noah Olivier, who, who South African, he had coached the Natal Sharks. He came over and coached my club in Washington, D.C. for a few you know, for a few matches back in the 90s. And he never yelled. He simply just talked to the athletes and he told us what to focus on. I want you to focus on this. Hey, Pete, I want you to focus on this. Here's what I want you to do is hook on night. I'll need you to do this. And I can't do his accent, right? But that's the way the coaches talk to us in rugby. There's not a lot of yelling out there. It's a lot of here's your assignment. Here's what you need to do. Go out there and do it. And that's why, you know, especially with somebody like Nick who grew up in the States, who didn't grow up in a rugby environment, I wanted to have him explain, like, what was the process for learning a new sport? You know, if you're a personal trainer, you work with clients of you might, you know, today you might work with a tennis player and somebody who played soccer and tomorrow you might work with an older adult whose only sport is gardening in their yard. But if you understand movement, you can work with any client. That's what I learned from Gary Gray many years ago is if you understand the language of movement, if you understand how to watch movement, if you understand how to communicate and coach movement, then you can work with any client, any sport. And that's a real, that's one of the reasons why I want to have Nick on. And I wanted to have him on because I wanted to hear about the language of communication, about the positive communication. And you don't have to be a trainer, folks. You don't have to work in the fitness industry. Whatever you do, if you're, just a, if you're a fitness enthusiast, if you're a fitness consumer and you like this podcast, think about how you communicate at work. Think about how you communicate with your family. Are you giving people clear, direct communication? Or is it, you know, think about what Nick said. If it's at halftime of a busy match, if you're in a stressful environment at work, you getting mad at somebody might not help the situation. Rather, it's about identifying how can we get better? What can we do? What do we need to do? Yes, this is a crappy situation. Yes, this stinks. But guess what? <laughs> We're in it. How do we come together? We're down by a lot against an opponent. How do we come together and finish through? How do we carry on? How do we you know, you know, get our back up straight? You know, and that's one of the things that playing a sport like rugby teaches you. you know, the, some, of the, some of my closest friends and colleagues come from the rugby community. Because there's an attitude and ethos when you run face first into people. I learned how to play rugby in the early 90s. I, I was a hooker when we used to call in our scrums from a meter out. You know, we called it. You had seven people throwing you neck first in the opposing opposition. You learn how to overcome adversity pretty damn quickly. And you learn the confidence of that. You learn the role of teamwork. You learn the role of communication. You learn the role. You learn the importance of knowing what you're supposed to do at any position on the field. That's one of the reasons why I want to have Nick on is because in the sport of rugby, it's about communication. It's about open lines of dialogue. It's not about yelling or being the most macho. It's about how do we communicate and how do we make sure that we're all on the same page working towards the same goal. 
doesn't matter whether you're in fitness. It doesn't matter what you do. What matters is if you understand how to use language, if you understand how to communicate clearly, you can accomplish almost anything. You know, Nick came from a background where he never worked with rugby players, and he's working with one of the top rugby programs in the world because he understands movement and because he understands communication. That's why I want to have Dr. Nick Winkleman on. So pick up a copy of his book. I know it's not coming out for a little while. I'm looking forward to reading it. And, you know, as an aspiring coach, you know, I was, you know, I, I told Nick that, you know, in a few years, I want to be coaching rugby at the professional level. I'm not sure how I'm going to do that, but I know that we have the Major League Rugby here in the United States. And I do have another rugby interview coming up on the next episode of All About Fitness. So for a couple of episodes at least, if you, I really appreciate you joining me for All About Rugby. But in all seriousness, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything to add, please reach out at me, Pete, at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And keep those reviews coming. I really, really greatly appreciate it. Thanks for stopping by, and I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Rugby. <laughs> Just kidding. All About Fitness. Not going anywhere. Still here. Thanks for joining me, folks. I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness. 